Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. What up? Welcome to On The Bench. I am your host for today's episode, Brendan Sinone, joined only by myself at the very moment, but stick around. We're going to go into a few recruiting items real quick, and after that, going to have a thorough breakdown with X's and Knowles, Kevin Little, and Coach Adam Brown, Coach AB, on FSU's struggles in the passing game in its first two years under Mike Norvell, why that's kind of perplexing given his pedigree and his resume at Memphis and how explosive his passing games were. We're going to get into the reasons why it really hasn't worked out so far at Florida State, and we've documented this on Knowles 24-7, but a lot of what that conversation is going to be about, and you can check out that episode on our YouTube channel, Knowles 24-7 YouTube channel. Uh, A lot of what we get into in the episode is... Mike Norvell's been limited with some things, but also we can see a few trends that point in it potentially going in a positive direction in 2022. So that's a thorough, in-depth conversation. I think it's really informative. I enjoyed being a part of it with Kevin AB, very knowledgeable, the two of them. Uh, So stick around after the commercial break to hear that. Before we get into that, though, a few recruiting updates. So first off, and the reason why Chris and Zach aren't with me today is those guys have been absolutely grinding during the month of June, ton of camps and being outside in 110 degree heat and giving them the day off so they don't have to sit down and do this podcast today where I can kind of just kind of go over a few of the developments and then we can go from there. So I want to talk about Justin Turnitin, the offensive line transfer from South Carolina. Zach had mentioned on our last podcast that we were keeping an eye on him potentially visiting Florida State on Monday. Well, he ends up showing up to Florida State on Monday, saying that he plans to commit. On Tuesday, he officially enrolls at Florida State, so they accepted the commitment. Uh, they had to get a few things done academically with him. I think part of getting him on campus as well was knowing for sure what your scholarship situation was going to be. Uh, there's room without uh, Damon David being in the class, a safety from Oregon, to go ahead and offer Justin a scholarship uh, so you don't have to wait out to see what happens with the PWO game. I think personally that it's a a fine use of one of your remaining scholarships, either one or two left, depending on, on who you're counting. Uh, basically, you can't take the scholarships with you, right? You, you need to try to solidify your offensive line depth the best at the best as possible. And even though Justin has some bad film out there, he's got 45 to 49 PFF grade the last two seasons at South Carolina, so subpar grades. Uh, he is someone that does have experience, starting experience in the SEC. I'm not trying to tell you that he's going to be a surefire starter. I think you're likely bringing him on as an insurance piece for depth uh, at offensive tackle. 
uh, but he is someone who I think has value in that role. Maybe if he's in shape and engaged, and he did look in shape when we've seen him the last few times on campus. Uh, Justin does have like some physical tools and size to to be a legitimate starter at the Power Five level at tackle. So there's a chance. I just got to see if you can get him uh, up to up to speed fast enough and get him in a position to contribute in 2022. But for a uh, collective like depth standpoint, that's what I want to talk about real quick. Uh, he helps out. So you have now eight offensive linemen with at least a season of starting experience at the Power Five level, which I think is important. Or in the case of Demetri Emanuel from Charlotte, three seasons of starting experience at the Group of Five level. Uh, but between Robert Scott, Darius Washington, Marie Smith, all three homegrown talents with multiple years of starting experience. Dylan Gibbons, who started last year, was probably FSU's most steady offensive lineman. Uh, and then you bring in the transfers, Caden Lyles, Demetri Emanuel, Bless Harris, and then finally, we'll leave the final piece of that puzzle, Jason Turnitin. Those are eight guys that you can go into the season with having some level of comfort, depending on how much they play. Uh, really what you're doing is, you know, with, with Jason, Demetri Emanuel, uh, you're giving yourself options. Like I said earlier, it's an insurance policy. You're making it to where if a couple of guys get hurt, you're not going down to someone like, say, Brady Scott or Bavian Johnson. I'm not trying to be disrespectful of those guys. They just have their limitations at, at this stage in, in their respective careers when they were playing last season. So I think you kind of raise the floor of the offensive line room. It prevents you from, short of anything catastrophic, having to get to uh, say like Lloyd Willis playing before he's earlier or, or, or earlier than he's ready to, or say a Thomas Schrader having to rush back from an injury. The other recruiting item that I wanted to get to real quick was Florida State has a big official visit weekend coming up here. Uh, the last big one of June. I'm pulling up the list of visitors real quick. We'll get into a Monday show, I think, kind of recapping our takeaways, our exit interviews and whatnot. Uh, but for June 24th, so some guys are arriving here Thursday evening, but officials will start, I think, you know, on campus and whatnot on Friday. Here's the list. So there's eight guys we have confirmed right now. First off, defensive lineman from Highland Home, Alabama, Keldrick Falk. Uh, Zach Blossing caught up with Keldrick. He's a top 100 recruit nationally, six foot five, 240-pound defensive lineman, uh, 84th nationally, so someone who a super high priority for Florida State. I think you're going to have to battle for him, but uh, a ton of talent and, and length and athleticism there. So he, he's a high priority for the Seminoles. Uh, Zach also caught up with Lucas Simmons from Clearwater Academy International. He's a, uh, I think he's from uh, Sweden or Switzerland. Oh boy. Should have done my research beforehand. Uh, but he, he's, he's not a homegrown talent in that sense. So he, he's someone from over the, across the pond, as they would say. Uh, but he's here in the States now and is just a super imposing prospect. Six foot seven, 300 pounds. Saw him at camp last year. Moves extremely well at his size. 107th nationally. Uh, at a top 13 offensive tackle prospect. Some of that you're going to have to battle some, some regional teams for, such as Florida. You have Avery Stewart from Alabama Christian Academy in Montgomery, Alabama. He's a top 200 prospect nationally. Dalen Smothers is a priority running back for the Seminoles from the Charlotte area. He's 219th nationally, another running back. It's good to see some running backs kind of emerge on the board for Florida State. Another one taking an official visit, Samuel Singleton out of Fleming Island in Orange Park, Florida. So in the Jacksonville area, he's 221st nationally. 
Uh, also, someone we caught up with this week, Tavion Gadsden from Jenkins High in Savannah, Georgia. 656 nationally, but good frame at 6'4", 280 pounds. And then DeMarco Ward is a fairly late addition to the list from Duluth, Georgia. Not ranked currently, so on the staff is pretty high on. Uh, has a has a, like a, a small school offer list, but some of the smaller schools that are in on him are, have good reputations for like evaluations. So I think that's kind of where the linebacker board is right now, where you're going to have to maybe uh, take some, some rolls of the dice on guys. At, at this time, DeMarco Ward does have some intriguing... Uh, skills and, and athleticism at, at linebacker spot. The last name on our list that we have confirmed uh, through source, but not directly through this person, and I, I think this is going to be an official visit that uh, is worth monitoring and following and seeing if it ends up coming to fruition, but right now we have him listed, and that's Chris Parson, Florida State's quarterback commitment, someone whose recruitment has been very interesting in the last month or so, really since the Seminoles offered Brock Glenn and Ricky Collins, the two other quarterbacks in the last month, Chris Parson has opened up his recruitment. He still remains a commitment to Florida State right now. He was at Florida State for the elite camp at the start of the month, had said then, I think that was his last official interview and he spoke to Bud Elliott. He basically said, I am still committed to Florida State right now. I'm here, aren't I? Uh, and since then, he's gone to Mississippi State for an unofficial visit and then to SMU for an official visit. Uh, there's been talk about him possibly going to Cal for an official. I'm not sure where that stands right now, you know, ahead of the Elite 11. So uh, we'll see what happens. Trying to gather a little bit more intel on this. Hopefully I can get something in the next day or so, not just on you know whether he's going to be an official visit, but kind of his standing in this class right now. You know, right now, I, I will confidently say that Florida State's top option at quarterback, I think the guy they covet the most, and that's even with including, including Chris Parson, excuse me, on the board is Brock Glenn. Brock Glenn is a, a upwardly mobile, fast-rising four-star prospect. He was three stars. He's now four stars. I think he's actually ranked ahead of Chris Parson now in the composite rankings from the Memphis area. Mike Norvell, Tony Tokars, a couple of other uh, staff members have connections to Brock Glenn's uh, coaching staff uh, from their time at Memphis, someone they liked for a little while, and they decided to really be aggressive with recently. Now, he dropped his top five, I think, earlier today, and uh, FSU is on it, along with Auburn. The other threat there is Ohio State, where he's official visited. You kind of kind of see what happens with some of the domino effect at quarterback uh, with Ohio State, particularly. I get the feeling like it's going to be an Auburn and Florida State battle, depending on what happens with Ohio State. Uh, intel that we had after his official visit was that things went really well with Florida State uh, during the official uh, but yeah, it's going to be a battle because you got in on that one a little later than, say, Auburn uh, did. So I'm interested to see what happens there and, and how that kind of plays out with Chris Parson as well. So it'll be an interesting couple weeks here with quarterback recruiting. So that's what we got for uh, for the recruiting notes right now. I'm going to take a quick commercial break. On the other end, I'm going to put in the audio that we had from our YouTube show the other day with Kev and AB. If you want to learn a, bit, a little bit about the passing game, where it's been, why it's failed to launch and where it's potentially going stick around you can also check that out on our youtube channel Knowles 247's youtube page all right and it's just Knowles 247 go to youtube and that's where all our content's going to be all right stick around we'll be right back okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is, we're, this is the official start. We're going to cut everything else out. So welcome to our live stream. We're, we're doing the final part of our Failure to Launch series where we take a closer look at, at Mike Norvell's passing game and uh, kind of the reasons why it wasn't successful in the past couple of years. And uh, in this episode, I think we're going to kind of summarize that and look forward to the future to see how it projects, see if there is a, a future to this passing game um, and how long it might take to get there. So um, AB, you started us off, you kind of started the written part of these series, the failure to launch uh, part one with an offensive line piece yeah brendan thought it was funny i said launch it's just very irish my grandma it's coming in. Irish. it's coming in full man have you ever seen Oof. luck of the irish movie irish yeah i lost my amulet god. oh my god i had to watch that movie for for uh saint patty's day okay tell me about the offensive line ab uh they were a mess last year 21 different starting groups what's so crazy is that i was researching that they hadn't listed for like 24 and like a couple of them were like Ontario Wilson starting on the offensive line. I was like, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that, not sure that's accurate. But then I, I, I did go through them all and double check everybody. 21 different offensive line combinations last year. I don't, I'm not sure anybody in here is uh, as football savvy enough to realize how bad that that is. Um, you know, obviously a little exaggeration there, but yeah, 20, 21 different offensive line pairings or groupings last year is not good for your success. Um, so how does that compare to like what, what you would expect to see in a good year? Uh, I think Bama was around like 10 or 11. Uh, yeah, because obviously and, there's some shifting, that, some injuries, right? Yeah, and so I mean, look, some of those 21 were, you know, garbage time, you, you know, situations where like a Lloyd Willis got in a game late late in the game against like UMass there were a couple of those but, yeah but uh, we're not facing more garbage time than Alabama no and so that's that was the concerning part because for for the most part it was like actual games in which they needed five bodies out there to be successful and try to win and it was Brady Scott and it was just guys you couldn't really depend on so as we got into the data and started breaking things down man a lot of Kevlo in the chat tonight what's up with that come on guys we're all here. No, it's, it's Kevin Avicieto. Oh, okay. Ace of Vedia. Uh, That's yeah. surely what it is. Yeah, surely. I don't know surely, but how are you? Yeah, because um, yeah. So as we got into the data, and Kev, I don't know if you want to put some of that data up on the up in the background here. I know we had some of that available. So uh, the offensive line data. Yeah, so we could talk about it, and it obviously was in the failure to launch failure to launch part one that is up on Knowles twenty four seven. If you search back and check that out. 
That's Kevin Avocado. God. Kevin Avocado? That's surely not not how it's pronounced. Yeah, there it is. Avocado. Yeah. From the man himself. While Kev gets his data up here, please make sure you get in there and hit the like button. If you're not subscribed, subscribe. But if you're here, it's a good chance you are subscribed. And if you're listening to this on the podcast on On The Bench, uh, check out our YouTube channel. We have uh, two, actually two YouTube channels. You have the X's and O's where Kevin A.B. put down uh, film breakdowns. They do a great job with that. And they have one of the Bonjass and Turnitine. Turnitine. Speaking of Turnitine. Uh-oh. Here's some yeah. stats about him. So I went through and found uh, found some of the uh, transfers and kind of plugged them in there. Bless Harris wasn't available. I don't know if it's because of where he was coming from. Um, if that was uh, why he, he wasn't available for this. And then I had added, I thought I had uh, Dimitri Emanuel in there, Big Meech, but apparently not. Big uh, Meech. And some of these numbers were skewed because the games played and whatnot. But uh, yeah, if you start going through the numbers, um, the hurries or, or the pressures, you see Robert Scott at the top there with 21 pressures allowed last year. It's obviously not great. Um, I think uh, some of the some of the better offensive tackles in the country were in the 7, 8, 9, 10, that kind of ballpark. 21 is not great, um, obviously. Yeah, you can see it there. And as you go, as you, highlighter. Yeah, and if you and if you go down, I mean, you see sixteen for uh, uh, Darius Washington. And the thing to remember is that Florida State only played twelve games last year. They didn't. They didn't get a bowl game, so they didn't get that plus one. Um, Robert Scott didn't start every game last year, so his numbers are also a little off because he played even even less games than what some of the uh, higher caliber players across the country played. So. There's some concerns, but at the same time, I think that maybe we can talk about this a little bit more. And there's some optimism because I think we, A, we know that Robert Scott was dinged up last year. Um, we know that he battled through some injuries throughout the whole season, but also that he's a younger player. There is growth from him uh, that I think that you could kind of um, project, right? But for the offer for Scott, board. for Robert Scott, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think he's got some room to grow. There's there's reason that there's I mean, you look at the stats and that they're not overwhelming, but um, there is a lot of optimism around him. And I, I think I think it's because, yeah, without injury, with with more time to develop, I, I think he is a, a high ceiling kind of kid. And if you can get him in a situation where he's. I don't know if they accomplished that this offseason. Ideally, they, when they were, he who should not be named, Demarius Mims, uh, was close to to coming here. Uh, Robert Scott would have probably moved to right tackle or maybe even in a guard, which would have really shifted the dynamic of, of the offensive line. I think put him at his most natural position. Uh, so I don't know if you can necessarily like rely on that this year. I think he's going to have to be your starting left tackle still. But uh, you know, if if Dylan Gibbons is healthy all season and next to him, you know, that will certainly help out. Or if you're not having this drop off, like if they have a plate injured Dylan Gibbons or putting in a Brady Scott, which we're you know, going to dive into here with the offensive line depth that AB's mentioned, like you know, there are ways for him to improve his game still. And remember he's, he's only a, a true junior this year. Like he's still right. yeah. theoretically ascending. Yeah, I mean, his body's still developing. He's still, he's still finding his strength. Um, 
We, we broke down his film at times last year. There's times he gets beat with speed, but there's also times he gets beat with power. And you would hope going into being a true junior that he can eliminate some of the times that, uh, you know, he's beat by power. He should be able to anchor against some of those full rushers and, uh, and hold up a little bit better as he's had another all full off season to get his body uh, right. Um, and as he's matured and developed, uh, Darius Washington on the other side, I, I don't know what to, I don't, I don't know how to talk about him because I don't, I don't think we know where he's going to be at at this point. Right. I mean, yeah. is he, is he a right tackle? Is he a right guard? I would love to see him at center. I, I, people keep asking me what my ideal starting five is. And it, it really, for me is him at center. And I don't know if that's where they're going to put him. Um, I, I don't know if they've made any of those decisions at this point. They're probably going to get into camp and try to figure those things out. Not to mention he missed a little bit of time in the offseason with a, you know, with an injury that he had to recover from and, you know, rehab. And I don't think it wasn't anything major, correct, Brendan? Nothing major. It was a light procedure. And we actually yeah. saw him a couple of weeks ago at one of the camps yeah, as a as a counselor uh, for one of the recruiting camps and had a knee brace on, but was moving well and seemed in good spirits and didn't seem like he lost any weight or anything like that. So yeah, I, I don't think it's yeah. I think it's gonna compromise him too much. And so I, I mean I think it probably would be best to get into this conversation now. And I think it's a conversation that's been had across all forums uh, about the offensive line, bless Harris, Darius Washington. If you're putting him somewhere, where are you putting him? Washington, that is. I think I think that's a, the hard thing about Washington is I, I do think he's genuinely one of your better offensive linemen, but he's not a true anything. Um, and so there's there's pros and cons to that, right? He's He's not going to be a true tackle. Um, he's probably more of a guard, but you can slot him in at center. Um, I think for that reason, you'll see him kind of play all around uh, as the season goes on, as as they kind of get a feel for, you know, there's four new new bodies on this line that are all going to be competing for snaps. Um, and so it's nice to have someone like Washington who can slot in anywhere, but I think that also means that, you know, there's a chance he might be be put aside if other guys step up um, because he might not be your best guard, but he might be your third best guard and third best tackle, you know? Here's what's here. Here's what's sorry, Brendan. I just wanted to make this point. Here's what's odd about Darius Washington is he very well could be your best offensive lineman. Yeah, I, I think he, and, I think he might be, but. That was frozen? No, go ahead. <laughs> oh, so, oh, go ahead, Kev. No, I, I think he he might be your your best offensive lineman, but I, I'm not sure he's. I yeah, I think he's a little bit of a tweener in my opinion, and I don't know where I'd put him. It's it is this double edged sword with him. I I would contend that he probably was your most consistent offensive lineman. He was certainly the most reliable in terms of like being available and and playing decently and getting better as the year went on last year. I mean, outside I think of the. The Florida game, the season finale, which he played on a on a bum wheel, like that was his only sack he allowed all season. Navy pointed out the pressures he allowed, but you know, he he cut down earlier in his career when there was a mistake, it was often a catastrophic mistake that would lead to like a quick sack. He cut that off and he and he got better at it. So I thought he was actually pretty good at tackle and especially at right tackle. I understand the appeal of like just his his size, he might project better as a guard, but you know, we you know, Kevin and I were there this spring, like he he didn't look super comfortable there. Now it was a transition period uh, for him, but I thought he looked much more natural at tackle. I mean, we know he's worked at center some before too. I think ultimately like the ideal role for him this year, if you can 
afford this, if this is a luxury that you're able to, to kind of stumble upon, this if he is that swing guard and swing tackle for you, and he's someone that you can kind of, you know, if someone gets hurt or needs to take a series out, you can put him in there and, and things don't take this, you know, huge plummet plunge. So yeah. yeah, that's an interesting dynamic with him for sure. Yeah. And what, I mean, what's best is you've got, I think you've got a couple guys that you could do that with, um, you know, Demetri Emanuel's a, a young man who comes in as a starter uh, at his last program. And I wouldn't call him an elite starter, but a, a higher caliber player for where he's coming from. Uh, yeah. But he's a young man who could play tackle. He could play guard. Um, I think, again, even if you needed to in a pinch, he could probably step in and play center. You've got guys who can move all over the place, which is nice. Um, what the hell? Oh, oh, all right. There's some wild stuff going on in the chat right now. Bro, I don't, I don't have the chat pulled up, so I have no idea what's happening with it. It's probably for the the best. It, it is for the best. So anyway, um, yeah. So what's what is uh what's nice is I think that they're in a position now where they've got an opportunity to get their best five out there, and also have the opportunity to give guys a break move guys around if they need to, they, they can get, they can get themselves into good positions now in a game. Whereas in the past you were stuck that if somebody got hurt, Brady Scott was coming in and I don't think it mattered where it was. That's what you had. That's all you had. So, you know, I look at all this data, you know, looked at all the, all the stuff with the offensive line. And at the end of the day, it's like really the, the offensive line was bad because they just didn't have any options. They're young at, at some key positions, you know, mainly off of the tackle. Center, they were bad because Bree Smith, you know, he fought injury the entire year. This is a young man we haven't talked about yet, but he fought he fought an injury the entire year with the back. He's been, you know, underweight since he got here. Hasn't had an opportunity to get himself uh, to the weight that he needs to be at to be successful as a center uh, at Florida State. And they're putting... They're getting they're getting into spots now where they don't aren't forced to play him. They aren't forced to play Darius Washington if they have to, or you know, if they don't want to. Uh they can move Robert Scott around now if they if they so choose. Um, I have some concerns about some of the guys coming in, you know, Turnatine coming in. He's got a month to kind of get caught up. That's concerning, right? Um, we heard Dylan Gibbons last year talk about how difficult it is to come in and kind of get, you know, jump just dive right in and be at your best. Um, you know, you could say the same with, uh, with big Meech. you know, he's a young man who's been, he's been with the program for how long now? A month, a month. Although he does have experience in Alec Atkins system Ooh, right. which helps. one year of it, which is yeah, not insignificant. I don't know if it's a thing, right. but something. No, I, don't, I don't think so. I think, it, I think it helps, but at the same time, you know, so when we're talking about depth. There is, are concerns about that depth. Um, but anyway, so what does all this mean for the, for the passing game. I think realistically you can go into the season feeling like on standard passing downs, you have a chance, right? I mean, is that crazy to say? Yeah. I mean, when I, when I point to kind of where this offensive line is compared to where it was a couple of years ago, um, two years ago, you had a freshman Darius Washington starting as your left tackle. And now he's a guy where we're figuring out where we put him based off what's most convenient. And so, right. um, 
I, I think that's that's a positive sign. That's a move in the right direction. I think that, yeah, while they're not going to blow you away, I, I think they're an average ACC offensive line. I think I think we're we might be a half step behind the projection everybody's been talking about. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, as it stands today, you've you've got a lot of pieces who can go in there, and I just don't think there's that drop off that we were seeing yeah. before. Yeah. Eight, eight guys that you don't feel awful about, which I know the standard at Florida State should be a little yeah, higher, but if you've yeah. been following along since 2018, like eight is kind of the magic number that you want of this core level of competency, right? Mark Norvell talks about you want seven to eight guys to be able to rely on during the season. So off the top of my head, we have Robert Scott, Darius Washington, Maurice Smith, Dylan Gibbons, all coming back. And then you add Caden Lyles from Wisconsin, who has some good film and one or two bad games yeah. too, but mostly yep. solid at Wisconsin. So him, Wes Harris, who looked okay this spring. Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, th- I thought he, I thought he looked, I was expecting him to struggle and Lyles to, to be an immediate impact guy. And I, I think I actually saw the opposite. It was kind of the other way around. No, I'm, I'm with you there. And I thought bless Harris was, was a poor take at the time. And I can eat crow and say, I think that was, uh, he'll be serviceable at the very least. But then you have big Meech as well, and then Justin Turnatine, Turnatine uh, who I, I'm very much looking forward to Florida State's announcement and pronunciation guide so I can remember it and say the <laughs> last name correctly consistently. But you know, those are eight guys with multiple years of starting experience at various levels. And uh, basically, this the reason why I think, A.B., you can feel good is that you don't have to play Lloyd Willis unless something catas- you know, catastrophic happens. Right. You don't have to play Rod Orr uh, unless something really, 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 really so that's your these are insurance policies that should elevate the week to week uh production of your passing game even just marginally and provide a little more consistency yeah i mean and i think that's the key you're you're gonna find yourself even if it's two three four plays in a game um where you find yourself having a better chance in a drop back passing situation that's i mean that's a hell of a win i think for where they've been over the last couple of years. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that in any third and 11 situation over the last, however many years that they stood a chance at all. And I think that, I think going into this season with the group that they have now, the competition that I think they're going to be able to roll out there because you're not going to be able to just kind of roll over and practice and assume that you're the best. Um, I think the whole hashtag work mantra uh, will stand true this year because of the depth that we're talking about that three or four opportunities a game, you know, and in passing situations in a game now, it could be the difference. Um, And we know how many, we know how many one score games there were in last year. We know how many one score games are kind of projected to be in in this upcoming season. Ultimately you could be talking about the difference in games um, just by adding a couple capable, competent bodies at the offensive line room. I think that's important, right? I mean, we sat here before. I know we're rambling on about the O-line, but I do think that this is where it all starts and stops. Right. We sat here before uh, before we kind of made the move over, and we sat and talked with you, Brendan, about how many um, offensive line prospects to bring in. Hmm. And you thought four. And, I mean, look, shit. Look what they did. Yeah, they, they brought in – I mean, they uh, – yeah. They had to. They had to. They went on and got two more. They tried to get a big dog. That, that fell apart for reasons way outside of their control. Um, mm-hmm. 
I think that they did what they needed to do this offseason to shore up the position that I think that they know the two positions and we're going to let's let's get into wide receivers uh, uh, next here. Yeah, I was going to say um, the two positions that they knew that they needed to fix the most wide receiver and offensive line. They went out and they allocated four scholarships at both positions, um, eight total between the two. Yeah, it's for a reason. Yeah, big time. Um, we'll re- we'll, real quick, guys, will we revisit the offensive line at all? Or because I have a stat I want to drop it. If we're absolutely, gonna, yeah, drop it out there. Drop, drop it right let's, now. Let's drop get it, it all out of here. All right. So according to Pro Football Focus, I, I think this is just going to be like when you look about the potential upgrades that AB was just alluded to. So like Caden Lyles, for example, his three-year pass block grade, which like for PFF, for those who don't know, uh, if you're in the 60 range, that's about average. If you're in the high 60s, that's getting to above average replacement level, below 60, below average. So at Wisconsin, in about 300 snaps, he was always between each season 60 to 69.4. Nice. So he was average. He was a capable pass blocker at Wisconsin. Maurice Smith, the last two seasons, had a pass block grade of 32.6 and 38.4. And that's that's awful. That's probably one of the worst in the power five for a center. So just upgrading the core competency. And part of that is because, again, Maurice Smith has had to play underweight and had to play hurt sometimes. That's going to affect your productivity. But that totally changes the dynamic of your offensive line and pass blocking, right? Yep. If you can upgrade yep. that. And then the other stat I was going to throw out there was a uh, Demetri Emanuel versus Devonte Love Taylor. Uh, DLT played hurt last year for Florida state uh, and his pass block grade was 67.6, which is actually solid. Demetri Emanuel in his lone season with Alex Atkins granted at a lower level of football was 76.5. So uh, probably going to be standard or at least not having a drop off there uh, and, and maybe even an improvement. So those are, when we're looking at the potential upgrades, like those are things that I think we need to consider in projecting this team out. The guys who were maybe struggling last year, you've you've probably upgraded a little bit when it comes to pass pro. Um, that was so my, that was so story. in my opinion, I think um, I think it's it, think of it like a chain, right? It's your, it's your weakest link, um, but as soon as you strengthen other parts of the chain, the whole thing goes together. So another important cog that wasn't that was strengthened. I think we would all agree was was wide receiver and Brendan, you talked about that, right? Yes. So yeah, I went in depth with the wide receiver play, and yeah, you can watch something and say, "Hey, that doesn't quite look right." But then once you start <laughs> start, and if you guys are familiar with the X's and O's channel, like Kev's favorite play is what Kev? You want to describe it real quick? So we can't show sure. it on a specific channel, but go ahead and, and paint the picture if you will. This is this is why I have this pulled up. Um, so this is slot fade, and if you're if you're listening to this on a podcast, uh, um, try to stick with me here. But uh, basically, it is what it says. So um, the slot receiver, so not the outside receiver, but a guy inside of him runs a fade that's a little bit loose of a fade. Um, and basically, what you're trying to do is you're trying to get your slot receiver, who's usually a smaller, speedier guy, kind of isoed on a safety or an outside linebacker. And uh, in theory, that's a mismatch and you're you're getting a, a deep shot down the field. Uh, your outside receivers in this situation are just going to run hitches. Uh, so the quarterback is reading it much in the same way he would read like a smash concept where you're basically high-lowing this corner. Um, if he if he stays up, you've got a one-on-one with a, with a safety or, or, or an outside linebacker on, the, on a deep shot. If he goes back, then you'll just take the, the easy yards here. Um, 
on the on the hitch. And yeah, so Norvell likes these plays. He doesn't want to overload his quarterback with too many reads. Um, and he likes to take a deep shot. So they're going to run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. They're going to try to suck these safeties up. And they're trying to take advantage when these safeties get sucked up by hitting that slot fade. So going over the top when there's no more safety help from running the ball, keeping the defense honest. And we saw at Memphis in a video I did a couple times, a, a couple videos ago that, you know, this works. And in, when you have the talent, when you have the, um, the pieces, this works. Uh, mm-hmm. When you don't have the talent and you don't have the pieces, we saw that uh, this hasn't been working at Florida State because uh, what wasn't happening was when this slot receiver was getting a one-on-one matchup with, with a guy he should beat, he wasn't winning. So that means that the defense is allowed to kind of take these safeties and cheat him down in the box and if you watch that last video i did clemson just had their safeties sitting here because they knew that you know florida state's not going to win this and so uh bringing in a wide receiver that that consistently can can beat a safety in man coverage can beat uh, a backside corner in man coverage is is important for an oil scheme um i personally wouldn't have ran it with the wide receiver core we had it at florida state last year but um it's their their defense and it's their it's their offense is what they want to run and so it's their responsibility to get guys in that that can run that so part part of what you articulated well kev is like that this is to get those one-on-ones and like that fades a, a particular concept they did run a lot at memphis that you are like outlined previously so as a coach you want to stick to like what you know and what you do well right like in theory and especially in the nfl like that's what these coaches like. They always talk about one on ones. What we want to do is create one on ones and get our playmakers in space. I mean, uh, Mike Norvell talks about this offense being the offense built for playmakers, and in doing the research, like the eye tests and the metrics matched up. They didn't have playmakers at wide receiver. Not only did they not have playmakers, guys who were dynamic, uh, they were largely some of the worst wide receivers in the Power Five. <laughs> so <laughs> it's an awful combination and. And I'm not trying to dog anyone personally. Like we're going to talk about Keyshawn Helton and he's someone that Kev has outlined. Like I love Keyshawn Helton as a person and, and that injury, that knee injury robbed him of some of his athleticism and it, it's a damn shame. But like, so pulling up like success rate. So success rate at a, targeting a wide receiver and that's just the uh, layman term. Layman terms, it's basically uh, dependent on down and distance, uh, how many yards you need to get for a successful play and how often you reach that yardage. Uh, the success rate should be about like 50% or so on average for targeting a wide receiver and man coverage, uh, Ontario Wilson has success rate of 21.3%. Andrew Parchment success rate of 26.7%. Keyshawn Helton success rate of 33.3% against man coverage. And those are three out of your four most uh, used wide receivers last year. And and those numbers are pretty damning. Uh, The only other numbers I want to read out here real quick, and it's tough because you could, say, well, like maybe the quarterback didn't get them the ball in the right place or, you know, these numbers could be skewed and whatnot. But I think when you put them all together to the totality of it is pretty damning. So the first stat is FSU success rate in general when targeting wide receivers versus man coverage was 37.3%. That was 106 nationally out of 130 teams. So bad, right? FSU's wide receivers averaged 4.1 yards after the catch per reception. That was 115th nationally. To me, that number kind of shows... Do you have wiggle? Do you have juice? Do you have dynamicism, right? Is that a word? Dynamicism? I think so. If not, I made it up. So 
The final one, the final stat is FSU's success rate on wide receiver screens, which again, you get the ball to wide receiver short, let him make a play. Uh, that was 23.5% success rate. That was 122nd nationally. I have 12th written down on the story. I'm going to go edit that now, even though it's like a week old. So anyways, that is in a nutshell how bad FSU's wide receivers were last season, fellas. It's uh, it's problematic and it's really tough to be a balanced offense when your wide receivers can't win one-on-ones. Yeah. So somebody in the chat asked, uh, separation off the line of scrimmage, how much of this is coaching and, and how much is innate talent instinctual? Maybe you're the coach. I mean, I've been a big uh, detractor of Ron Dugans personally. Um, And I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of people out there standing for him right now. uh, You know, really wanting him to be leading this wide receiver core. Um, And I'm not, and I'm not a wide receiver coach, so I, I can't sit and give you all of the finer details of a wide receiver play. It's not something I've spent a lot of time with. Coach quarterbacks and offensive line and a couple defensive positions uh, in my time. Um, but I know that they consistently don't get off the ball well. I know they didn't consistently get off the ball well at Miami. I know his wide receivers didn't consistently get off the ball well at Louisville. Uh, at some point when it looks like a rat, smells like a rat, by golly, it might be a rat. Not to go all T.O. on you there, but uh, yeah, our- yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a problem, but I also think the bigger problem is the talent issue. Um, you know, some of Brandon, Brendan's data there, I mean, really speaks to how unathletic these guys are. Um, you know, you talked about Keyshawn Helton. I mean, these are guys that just they couldn't get through an arm bar uh, from a D-back. Um, they couldn't get off of any type of press. They can't run away from anybody and separate. And then it's great if you've got all this wiggle at the line of scrimmage, but if you can't put your foot in the dirt and be explosive, you're not going to, you're not going to beat anybody. And ultimately that I think was the big problem with this wide receiver core is when they put their foot in the ground, they just don't go fast enough to win anything. Um, well, I, and I don't think there's any coach in America that could get that out of them. I, I think that, I mean, the recruiting rankings say that your wider, you shouldn't have the worst wide receiver core in the power five. And I think you do. Um, but I think there's also been a string of, of bad luck, on a, on a certain situation where if in a year span you have a high four-star not show up, you have uh, the number one receiver in the class, you know, do what he did. You have a high-talent transfer, getting a car accident as soon as he commits. Um, so so there there are some reasons why, why the talent necessarily isn't where it is. I think the route running is subpar, and I think a lot of that is coaching. Um, I would agree with that. Uh, before we get too far away, I did want to address this question. So, so we've established the wide receivers are bad. Um, and so the, the question is, will they improve? And someone asked about Johnny Wilson and I kind of wanted to bring this up cause I already had it drawn up from earlier. Um, so the thing about Johnny Wilson is that even if he's not giving you much in the, in the passing game per se, he kind of gives you a lot in the running game, right? So, um, what they're going to do with him a lot is kind of have him out as this short receiver, this short um, slot guy here, a little nub end. And so if you're going to line up a corner on him, uh, he's big enough, strong enough to block that corner and you, you run outside zone or or something along those lines to try to get that edge. Um, If you instead, you know, maybe put a second safety in here or a bigger guy, 
then in theory you can you can run some routes to to kind of uh take advantage of a slower slower defender out here so that's what they're going to try to do with johnny um and if he can catch i think that he really expands your offensive playbook but um what do you guys think about uh some of the newcomers i'll let brett start okay all right so so i was pulling up my stats real quick because i had some metrics but yeah i don't even you know i I leaned heavily on metrics before so let's just go with with the eye test what we know so the new wider series coming in are johnny wilson uh, like Kev mentioned, he's huge. Uh, was one of the best blocking wide receivers in the country last year. I've mentioned the ability to catch the ball consistently. Yeah, that was something that was problematic at Arizona State. Uh, it was problematic in the spring, to be quite frank as well. Now, he had some really good moments as well, but that inconsistency uh, is what you're trying to fix because he's a former top 100 wide receiver at six foot seven with a lot of physical tools. Can he be reliable? Uh, another guy who comes from out west and same high school uh, as Johnny Wilson is Micah Pittman from yep. Oregon was a pretty impressive punt returner this past year. A uh, brother of Michael Pittman, who's a star wide receiver in the NFL and son of Michael Pittman, who was a pretty good running back for the Tampa Bay Bucks for for a while when, when we were a little bit younger. So uh, Pittman's been pretty good during his career, but never like dynamic. I think never more than. Uh, 300 yards receiving in the season. Now he has voiced frustration with usage and changing of coordinators and kind of someone who feels like he got caught in limbo with the COVID year. So we'll see if they can uh, ignite that. And then the last guy of no, well, I guess Deuce Span is one super speedy wide receiver from Illinois, but converted quarterback. We saw him the spring super raw And the last guy. And uh, this has a big question mark, a big variable here, but that's Winston Wright from West Virginia. Uh, all the metrics, all just the, the normal stats and the advanced ones and, and just the film too shows that he's probably the most dynamic wide receiver that you brought in this spring would would have been your number one wide receiver at the start of the season if you knew for sure he's healthy i'm talking about in past tense because uh, frankly i don't know exactly what we're gonna see from winston right this year he he suffered a car in or an accident a leg injury hang on three two one right uh he suffered a leg injury in a car accident uh, this past spring, and we're not entirely sure what that's going to look like for him. Uh, his family's optimistic that he'll be good to go at the start of the season, but yeah, we don't we don't know for sure how that's going to potentially slow him down. So those are the additions. Uh, but guys, I don't, I, I can't confidently say it's going to be a markedly overhauled or significantly more dynamic wide receiver room. We we just don't know that right now. Oh, but I think what's interesting is that I think we can safely say that it's going to be better because some of the data does suggest that these guys are better than what's been there. Um, we looked at some of Micah Pittman's success rate numbers against uh, press coverage. We did the same with Winston, right? They were drastically better than what's been on this roster. Sample size may come into play on some of that, but uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you, you, you just got to trust the data to, to some extent. Um, you know, I think it's a lot like the offensive line group, uh, you know, you get Ja'Kai Douglas in another year where yeah, Gator Kirk, if we can't pass, let's run the wishbone. I like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll come install the wing T. Let's do it. Um, you know, you've got Ja'Kai Douglas, who's a who's a player that I think you're looking to take another step forward in his third year in the program. Uh, he's a guy who realistically had a good spring, flashed towards the end of the year, especially in the Miami game. What's up, Wayne Jr. in the chat? Um, you know, flashing that game, flash, flashing a few games down the stretch. Um, he's kind of more of a specialty player. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to speak to his usage um, from the spring, 
you know, he's a guy you're going to get on wheel routes. You're going to try to get him matched up on some of these uh, slot fade concepts down the field. Um, you know, Johnny Wilson, if anything, even if he can't catch the ball, he's such a big body. He's going to force a team to have to account for him with their safeties because of how well he blocks. Um, if Kev, I don't know if you want to pull that uh, that graphic or the um, blackboard back up. Yeah. Teams aren't going to be able to roll their safeties. Teams aren't going to be able to roll that safety away from him because he's going to obliterate any corner he's matched up with. Right. Um, you know, so when you want to start talking about running outside zone over there, you've got you've got numbers if they rotate to the uh if they roll that free safety into the middle of the field. Yeah. So now suddenly teams aren't going to be able to do that, which is going to open up some advantages to your trip side. So even if he can't catch a cold butt naked in Alaska. He, I, I do think he helps you um, because of what he can be as a blocker. I think it's reasonable to project he's going to be able to catch the ball a little bit. Is it going to be consistent enough? I don't know. Is it going to come back to bite you in the butt? Maybe. But he is going to absolutely eliminate um, defenders with his blocking skills. Yeah, it's, it's forcing this defense to keep a safety over here, meaning that you're basically strong, strong-handing them into playing some kind of man or, or, or a three right. over three on the, on the strong side. And so, um, again, it comes down to you're getting, he's what, what he does is he makes matchups for you. But the question still is, is Pittman or is Wright going to be healthy or is whoever going to be able to win this one-on-one matchup once you force the safety, this direction. And and I'm higher on Pittman, I think, than most people generally were, even when he was coming in and then kind of seeing him in the spring and especially the back half of the spring, you saw the ability to win one-on-ones. He made, uh, what was it, like almost every day, right? Like he was making a, a contested, difficult catch. Pittman was looking pretty good. Uh, we went through and watched his game in the spring game a, a couple weeks back, um, isolated every play from him and I think he was able to to kind of get open when when he runs better routes than anybody you have on this roster. Uh, what that says about uh, coaching is is one thing, but um, I think I think he struggled a little bit against some some of the longer new guys. I think uh, Az mm-hmm. Thomas did a good job shutting him down, and McCall did as well. But um, yeah, I think I think he has a chance to get open, and between him and um, I think Ja'Kai Douglas will step up a little bit. I think you'll have one out of two guys there that could potentially win those win those slot fades. Yeah. Which is which is big. I I had one coach that's familiar with with Micah Pittman basically say like, you know, compared to what FSU had last year, this is a Pac Pac twelve coach, but like they're like, hey, you know, with, with what FSU had last year, Micah Pittman um might only be like a, a potential like sixth round, seventh round draft pick, maybe not even that, but even if he's in that conversation by the end of the year, like that's a significant upgrade to what Florida state had year before. So this is in, in when we're talking about like, this is kind of some of the offensive line, even if it's not going to necessarily be pretty, if you can take something that is, you know, even if it's still a weakness per se, but if it's not a bottom dwelling, like worse than power five weakness, then that should in theory make everything else better on offense. Yeah. In the context of trying to get this program to winning seven eight games i mean i think where you've gotten your your floor and your ceiling to to some extent is 
I think you're kind of there. Um, you know, you're going to have to go out and capitalize and they're going to have to put all these things together that we're talking about. The offensive line is going to have to take the next step and the depth's going to have to show up. The wide receivers, somebody in that room, Micah Pittman, Johnny Wilson, Winston Wright, if he's available, are going to have to show that they can win, you know, win the ball down the field, uh, be a threat. Um, I think it's probably a good time to take a step into the next realm of what we've been discussing though. Right, Kev? Yeah. So do should we, uh, I guess the, we should address Jordan Travis before we move on to, to kind of. Uh, takes incoming before we move on to anything else. Cause I, between the three of us, we all kind of took our shots at the passing game and none of us felt like Jordan Travis was the problem. Um, but I, I guess you guys can go ahead and defend that one. Um, I've got my opinions, but I want to hear y'all, y'all first. I, I'm the Jordan Travis, the J Trav president uh, on those 24 <laughs> seven. And this is coming from someone who was very critical of him a couple years ago, like this, his debut spring game where he completed a handful of passes and looked solid. I was there for the spring practices. Remember like the wind, like, he struggled to throw the ball into the wind and we start getting, you know, oh. feedback from, from coaches and, none of it was really pretty. And, and I think part of that was Jordan, like losing his, his confidence and that he's talked about. So anyways, this is coming from someone who was critical of him and saw like incremental growth over the last two seasons uh, and, and saw it like at the beginning, especially this past preseason camp. And you see him start being able to throw the ball with a little bit more confidence and like, don't get me wrong. There are still limitations to his game. I think we mm-hmm. could be getting close to seeing his, his ceiling from a talent perspective, but he did a lot of things right last year, not just in the context of like helping Florida state avoid disaster because the other quarterbacks the last two years, like couldn't do anything. And your record without him is probably, uh, Oh, four, maybe just one win, but like he legitimately put pressure on defenses as a passer as the year went out. We saw that against Miami at times we saw it against Boston college. Like he was starting to make some legitimate throws that, so between what the eyes show and the metrics, like there's something there. So you had an interesting metric that I, I thought was was good that will kind of cement what we're saying. Um, yeah, first of all, Bradley, I know you're kidding, but <laughs> Jordan uh, Travis is not the worst quarterback in Florida State history. He's not the worst quarterback <laughs> in Florida State 2021. So um, that would kind of make that statement impossible. What were the splits on the offensive yards per play with and without Jordan Travis? Because I think that's the, like, you can just show that stat and be like, all right, the team is better with Jordan Travis. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, I don't have them right here. Okay. Oh, I thought you had them. I thought we were Hang prepped on. for this. I thought we were pulling up the, I thought we were pulling up the radar chart. This is what I thought we were doing. Uh, I, can, I mean, you want to pull that up and stall I can pull up the radar, this. radar chart while you try to find those stats. Yeah. We'll find the splits, splitsies. All right. So this is the, uh, the heat map, um, kind of, of, of where Jordan Travis likes to throw. And it kind of shows, what I was talking about earlier and what I've talked about in my past two videos is that Mike Norvell. So, uh, this is the line of scrimmage here, a big fat pin here. Um, and you can see that in this heat map, if you guys are listening on a podcast, you'll just have to use your imagination. They like to throw it down the sideline. So if you imagine, uh, so screens here, actually, I think I drew that wrong. Um, so this is the line of scrimmage. Um, so they like to do a lot of screens, a lot of passes to the running back out of the backfield. Um, and then they like to throw it down the sideline, either in these slot fades or in fades to the outside receiver on like, so they'll have trips 
and the backside receiver will be isolated one-on-one and they'll try to hit fades to to that guy um but you see not a ton of of throws over the middle you see a few of these kind of posts and um, some over concepts uh but not not a ton of them you you see the majority of the throws are on the sidelines at the line of scrimmage, trying to get those screens, trying to hit the deep shot after you've pulled him up. Um, and, and that's kind of how Mike Norvell runs his offense. So this was this was your chart you wanted to include. What, what do you got to say here, Brendan? So this is, to me, so yeah, it's going to show the perimeter stuff, right? But I think the middle of the field, when you look between the you know, line of scrimmage in 10 yards there, uh, that was something that was not existent for Jordan last year or was very, very rare. Uh, so something that at least he started to be a little bit more aggressive with it. I don't know if we have the passing bin. Yeah, we uh, do. So that's that. going to show his success rate that Kev's going to pull up when going over the middle of the field. So this is this is the 2021 one. Yep. So you see, and for people listening on the podcast, so basically in the middle of the field, both like basically anything that's not to the perimeter, from 20 yards down to the line of scrimmage, he had a successful passing ratio in that area that he was targeting the field in all six of the bids. So uh, just outside the hash on the left shore and a little bit deeper in the middle of the hashes and then to the right of the hashes. So uh, the year before, uh, the middle of the field was a complete disaster for Jordan. So not only was he successful, but he was markedly improved as well. Uh, which is why you have to have a little bit of optimism for where the passing game is going under. Jordan. Yeah. So this is, is 2020. You see the struggle in the middle of the field. So this is where the, the narrative started, right? So there was a narrative and there still remains to be a narrative that Jordan Travis can't throw the ball over the middle. And that's, that's a lot to do with the 2020 season mm-hmm. and this graph you're seeing here. I mean, this is abysmal. Yeah. Um, 33% over basically from 10 yards or from, from zero yards to 20 yards, 33% success rate uh, in the middle of the field. But you can see that he has dramatically improved as a passer, at least at least in that range. Definitely. And you know, some of the deep ball stuff is a little bit more, it's so hit or miss, it's such a small sample size, uh, but he's pretty much better in every single area year over year. And I mean, the supporting cast wasn't markedly better or different. Um, yeah, so oh. uh, to, to support that opinion, and I personally think Jordan Travis is going to improve. Um, this is this is the passer efficiencies of all of the uh, years that Jordan, uh, that Mike Norvell has been a head coach. And you can see Riley Ferguson was the quarterback in 2016, improved by 2017. Uh, then Brady White took over, and you can see new quarterback, uh, obvious drop in efficiency. Um, and then he had his best year in 2019. Uh, then Jordan Travis takes over, drop in efficiency, doesn't have a good roster around him. Uh, wasn't the strongest passing quarterback, uh, as we just showed, but um, you see an improvement. Uh, so every year that Mike Norvell's had a quarterback for a second year, they've improved. And so... Um, I it's mean, also if, funny that some of those worst years were with Kenny Dillingham as the offensive coordinator. Yeah. Okay, so this is this is Dillingham. Um 2018 that year signaling yeah 2018 that was uh by far uh memphis's worst offense um in in pretty much every metric was was 2018 um so uh i mean you can pretty much show up 
bring up any stat. I don't I don't have it pulled up currently, but uh let's see. He was their offense was uh 2016 30th, then 18th, and then 40th with Kenny Dillingham at offensive coordinator, then eighth when he left. So um he left and the offense jumped up 30 32 spots. Um the this the thing is the story's the same at Auburn. In 2018, they were the 26th best offense. Then 2019, they were the 33rd. And then Dillingham shows up, and they became the 48th best offense. Um, so they dropped 15 ranks in Kenny Dillingham's uh, time. And, then, I mean, there's there's other factors that uh, account mm-hmm. for stuff sure. like that. It's not all his fault that all of this is happening. Um, but I thought that Brendan brought up a interesting stat the other day he found something rather interesting you want to talk about the motion stuff Ooh, the motion stuff yeah let's find the motion stuff while you're pulling that up real quick i did find these splits for jordan travis and like this is going to be revelatory to people who like watch the games like obviously the offense moved much better with jordan travis uh 6.24 yards per play with jordan travis at quarterback without him fsu is at 5.08 yards per play now, if you're talking about like the 6.24 average, that gets you to like uh, 41st nationally. So a well above average offense compared you're to... You're saying Blazer. 41st? And the stats yeah. I'm seeing has 6.2 as top 25. Hang on. Let's make sure. But it might be, they might be counting them differently. I, I was ready for this. <laughs> you, you had it ready to go. This is saying for 6.2, this is saying 40th. Now I have a 2021. I have, no, no. Dang. Well, either way, um, we're, I, we're still talking about like 20 to 40 range is kind of that third tier probably of offenses where compa- you're still above average compared to what? When it, when it, when it was gone, 5.08. So 5.08. You're averaging 1.2 yards better when he's in the game, <laughs> which is it doesn't sound like a lot if you're not used to like this kind of stuff. But yeah, this is I mean, how many plays are run per game for like a Florida State Um 70 yeah you're probably in the 70 range so you're talking about a, that's a that's a touchdown that's a you're driving the length of the field and scoring difference that's a, that's a huge difference um so here's the motion stats that you yeah think. motion stats let's get into it <laughs> crazy this is yeah crazy. these are these are so all right describe you it get to in? me you want me to get it okay i'm gonna paint a picture for the people listening here so uh when fsu ran a pre-play motion pre-play motion it was 42 attempts. The average passer rating was 198.1. They had a completion percentage of 71.4%. The yards per attempt was 10.4%. Uh, these numbers are awesome. I and mean, that's elite stuff. If you're averaging yeah. 198 passer rating, that's that's yeah, James Winston-esque. Mac, almost maxing out passing efficiency. Here. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. So without, which most teams aren't going to run motion a majority of the plays, but there's a pretty big discrepancy. 42 for motion, 151 passing plays without. So uh, three times more, more than that. When FSU didn't have a motion, the passer rating was 134.5 with a completion percentage of 60.3. Yeah. Yards per attempt down to 7.19. So uh, that's that's a different that's uh, guys help contextualize that for me. That's that's a huge deal. Uh, yeah, it's it's massive. Um, <laughs> there's not really another way to put it. I, I think that the 42 attempts maybe skews us a little bit, but um, you know, 10.4 yards per attempt is pretty pretty good. I, I would have loved to go in and know the plays that they're running on that. I mean, I know some of the 
some of the wheel route stuff that they did was uh, based off of motion. They did some stuff when they hit some of those deep crossers and deep posts. Um, yeah, it seems like they tried to develop their shot plays off of motion, which makes sense because you're moving guys. But motion cleans the picture up for for a quarterback. Um, I don't know why they didn't use it more often for a a wide receiver core that really lacked any type of playmaker as we've um, yeah. As we've laid out uh, pretty clearly. And then just to get a better picture for Jordan, who is still a developing quarterback, uh, it, it, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me to stand still and be stagnant um, when you can get guys moving around and try to make things clear for your quarterback. Um, now, obviously, they're running a more of a running offense uh, by nature. That's what Mike wants to do. So, when you start moving guys around, it does change some of your fits uh, for the run game. So it does make sense from that aspect why you would not want to run as much motion. But I, looking at those numbers, it makes me scratch my head why they didn't lean into a little bit more. So I think one of the biggest factors, uh, um, and you kind of nailed nailed it on the head here, is is kind of allowing your receivers room, space, and advantage, right? So in my last video, I talked about when you don't have the best receivers, you have to work extra hard to try to spring an advantage, right? So by putting a guy in motion before they run slot fade, you're now giving them a running start. You're making it harder for the defense to align to them. Uh, you're doing all of these things that that make life easier for the wide receiver. And I, you, you actually saw, saw them score a touchdown against, I believe, Boston College off of this motion. So Ontario Wilson went on motion, ran slot fade. He was wide open and he scored. Um, I, I did, I found a, another stat that kind of infuriated me, um, as I was going through this. Uh, so this is the percent of plays that they ran with motion plotted by game number. Hmm. So you would think that if you're doing your, your math and you're saying that, okay, well, they're more successful when they're running plays with motion, you'd think that over the course of the season, they would continue to use more and more motion. Um, so you see the games in red are the games they lost. They lost the first four games. I'm sure you guys remember that. Um, but I think it's interesting that, uh, out of the top six plays that in terms of motion percentage, five of them were wins. And this one was the one where they, they put up 20 points on a, on a decent, on a really, really elite defense in Clemson. Yeah, Clemson. Mm -hmm. So, um, the question, my question always is, uh, what happened with game nine and 12? Uh, I know it's not as simple as run more motion and win more ball games, but there's a severe was, drop off in games nine and 12. Who, who was game nine? McKenzie. That was NC State. Was that, if was yeah, that NC State. State. So the flu was, game. The so, flu game. so they had a lot of guys not practicing, could have impacted the game plan. I'm not sure with Florida what Florida, happened. Strange. Um, Unless yeah, like Jordan, Jordan getting dinged up for a little bit made them skew their game plan yeah perhaps perhaps the first four what a damning to me um yeah. as i started writing my offensive line piece beginning but the first part it was supposed to be kind of three things that i thought held the the uh passing game back and immediately the first quote that i went to was um, i swear i'm not trying to kenny knows way more about football than i'll ever pretend to know but i went to kenny's quote after that wake forest game which was game four um and he talked about how they weren't ready for the main coverage that they saw in that game. And, you know, Wake Forest was so 
heavily uh, a cover, I believe it was a cover four team. Was the, they're a cover one. three team usually. Well, that they, they were a big zone team. They weren't prepared for the man coverage. And I just, I slapped myself thinking, if you self-scouted your team, and, and I believe that they were confident that they had a very poor um, skill group. Um, I know, I know, I, I know, you know, some sources have shared that, that they felt that the skill group was lacking. Um, so if you knew that and you self-scouted, how the hell do you not come to the conclusion that yes, maybe they're a predominant zone team. How are you not prepared for man coverage? And it's like after that fourth game, then they started running mesh. They started running some things and being more prepared for, for the, the man coverage that they knew that they were going to then see throughout the season because teams looked at this wide receiver core and said, we don't have to do anything else. Um, we can play one-on-one out here and just dominate the football. Uh, it, it just, it really makes me scratch my head. Uh, this, that, this is my favorite stat about Dilly. Right. Um, so in 2019, Memphis ran 151 plays. This is without Dillingham as, as offensive coordinator. They ran 151 plays with motion. In the 2018 team, the year before, that was significantly worse in all the advanced metrics. How many plays do you think they ran with motion? I think you shared this one. Like two? It's it's four. Yeah. I think that's sad. So, Brett, we, we pulled the stat up. The FSU was 119th nationally with 56 plays with motions before passes. Last 100, 119th nationally. Yeah. 2019 under Alex Atkins. 213 plays with motion. What was their passes? 13th nationally. 13th some nationally. Of the, some of that is uh, Charlotte. What's uh, Healy? Is that the coach? Yeah, yeah. Yep. They, they run, like, I think this past year, like, they were still pretty high up with motion. So I think that's part of what Charlotte does. But if we're starting to kind of, with the whole point of what we've learned from the series, right, and start kind of spinning it forward a little bit, uh, is that Alex Atkins has experience running an offense with pre-play motion. And there's a lot of like NFL trends that show like the most successful passing offenses in the last year or two have been heavily reliant on uh, these declarations that AB mentioned, where you're trying to kind of get someone and see the motion uh, or see the, see the play and see the coverages with the motion kind of setting that all up. So, yep. It's easy to be critical of, of Dilly and there's reasons for, for criticism uh, for sure. Like there, there are, games and and adjustments that you can critique but you know they're also when you don't have great personnel you are limited uh you have to use though everything that is in your tool bag and i think the motion is a stat that we kind of stumbled upon that shows hey if you are a little bit more creative and you expand a little bit beyond your comfort zone this could be something that that helps uh, open up things for you and and punch above your your talent level and I, I say all this, and we've been very critical about Mike Norvell's play calling over these past couple of games, but I think what he does well is he sets up these shot plays. He gives his guys an opportunity in the third and fourth quarter to, to get these big plays. We saw in a few games them actually hit them. So um, uh, while no one's perfect, there there are strengths to how, how they call a game, and I, I think that there are things to grow on. We're just, we're just trying to paint a, a fuller picture of, of what we think could be improved. Yeah, absolutely. And to Kev's point and what he focused on with his video, which you guys have probably undoubtedly seen already, but like the play calling 
how maybe it didn't help with the passing game. And a point that I made to Kevin, this is when we start looking at the totality of the offense and trying to find your strengths, is I think one reason why Mike Norvell and, and the offensive staff last year can you t- continued to be aggressive in terms of pushing the ball downfield and taking these deep shots is because that protects your run game as best as you can without being good at passing the football, right? Yeah. Yep. If you're forcing the defense to keep a safety back, unless it's Clemson where they have a first-round cornerback and they're just going to dare you to beat them one-on-one, it's going to at least kind of force you to be honest sometimes. And you're protecting your pass, your best asset, which was your run game. They had the number one and number two running back in the ACC last year for yards per carry. So that is the totality and the collectiveness of like where you're trying to find balance. Uh, this brings me back to my point, guys. Like if 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 you have a glaring weakness that in a personnel perspective, that makes things difficult. If you have two offensive line and wide receiver, you're kind of SOL. You're dead on arrival yep, for the absolutely. most part. And I think that's largely what we, we've seen the last two years is personnel has made you have to be perfect uh, or close to it as a play caller. And, and obviously no coach is, is going to be perfect. No, no, you know, no coach is going to go call a touchdown play every time. If they did, they'd be, they'd be getting paid a lot more money and they wouldn't be coaching at Florida State. I mean, just is what it is. I think it's easy for us to sit and be critical and look at data. And I'm sure that Kenny, probably after the season, when they do a lot of their self-scouting, sat down, looked back, and thought with, of some of these areas where he could have been better. Um, I mean, undoubtedly, Kenny Dillingham's a good coach and going to be successful out in Oregon. Uh, I wouldn't question that for a second. Um, we've been critical of coaching tonight to some extent. That's not what we typically do. We try not to be overly critical of players here either. I think it fit kind of the forum of the conversation that we're having. Um, but we obviously respect the hell out of all these guys and what they what they do. Whether it works or doesn't work, it doesn't matter. They're they're putting a lot of a lot of time and effort into this profession. It's not easy. And it's easy for guys like us to sit on a YouTube channel and, and critique yeah, the hell out of them. Um so yeah, I think it's important to say those kinds of things too. Uh people are wanting to know what the hell's going on with the chat. There's a lot of wild stuff going on tonight. Brendan came in here and it what's went, happening. What did you guys do? I can't even say it out loud because I don't want it to be on the podcast. Yeah. There, there's, there's, there's some um, inappropriate comments that have been popping up. Some, ad, some ads, some inappropriate ads. Yeah. So, oh. um, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's time to put a bow on this whole, this whole conversation. Um, yeah. It's, it's been an hour. It's time has flown by as we've talked yeah, about this time. I think that I think that we've painted a good picture of the offensive line being a major issue, the wide receiver position being a major issue, and Jordan Travis not being as much of an issue, but potentially what what was going on with some of the um, schematical stuff didn't necessarily necessarily help the passing game, which was our focus. It it may have been good for the offense as a whole, not great on um, for the passing game specifically. Putting a bow on it all, going into next year, um, you know, a crucial season, year three for Mike Norvell. Um, I would say, first off, just rewatching the spring game. I uh, rewatched it again the other day. We obviously did a, a big spring game breakdown on X's and Knowles. If you guys want to go look for that, it, uh, I could already see a lot of difference. They use more motion in the game itself. They work the middle of the field. I mean, there are a lot of tight end or a lot of wide choice type stuff. Yeah. They were throwing that they were throwing in the, in that game. And it's a spring game. It means very little 
but it's important as we've sat here and talked about a lot of this stuff to kind of reflect and what evidence we do have of how things may change. We're able to go back and look at some of that stuff. They started working in the middle of the field a little bit more. They started using a little bit more motion. So moving it down the line, maybe we're going to see some of these things that we feel like Jordan Travis has been better at over the last year. Um, the offense as a whole had more success with, uh, coupled with some improved wide receiver play, some improved offensive line play. We may see an improved passing game. Ooh. Yeah. So um, I guess the, I guess the final question I want to leave you guys with. So this might be a, a tough question, but I think it's an interesting one. So Jordan Travis finished the year last year as the 43rd most efficient passer in the country. Now you've added across the offensive line, you've added across the wide receiver core. And I think that Alex Atkins has a better resume than Kenny Dillingham in terms of play calling in his single year at Charlotte. Take that for what it is. Um, so I, I think we all agree that in every aspect you've, you've probably improved, but probably not blown, blown anybody out of the water. So where do you think Jordan Travis finishes as a passer if he was 43rd in 2021? So we assume that there's a handful of guys that are leaving that have gone to the NFL or exhausted their eligibility, right? Uh, at the top of that list. So, yeah. uh, I mean, I think we're, we start the conversation with like, if I'm setting the spread, like 25th is like, I think the number of like, and that's not even including the rushing yards. We're just talking about him as, as a passer. Passing can, he efficiency. Be, can he be a top 25 most efficient passer in the country? And I think there are a lot of indications to say, yes, like the wide receivers will be at least marginally better. Yep. The offensive line be. will at least be marginally better. Uh, Jordan Travis, the one stat that Kev put out that we can't project is like what happens in year three with Mike Norvell, the quarterback, right? That's super yeah. interesting, yep. intriguing. Um, and Jordan Travis, if he continues to progress uh, and the coach staff's more familiar with him. Yeah, I think top 25 is kind of where I would put it, guys. I think that's super reasonable. And if he is a top 25 passer and plays every single game this season and still has that athleticism as a runner, uh, that probably equates to, to a win total that FSU – Fans would probably be pretty pleased with that. Would help out Coach Norvell on the recruiting Desperately trail. needs right. What about you guys? Yeah, well, I, I, I want to spin this question a little bit differently, and then I want to hear Kev's thought on that. If Jordan Travis pushes at forty third again, and your wide receiver room is better, and your offensive line room is better, is that enough to get you to where this team kind of needs to get to win wise? Um, I think. I think if he's 43rd still with an improved offensive line and wide receiver, because that's all going to factor in, right? Mm -hmm. Yards after catch, all of yep. these things all factor into passing efficiency. Um, if he's still 43rd, that means he actually got worse mm -hmm. this season than he was last season. Um, I don't think that's going to cut it. I think I think your defense defense is going to be better, um, but I think you're I think you're schedule is in a weird way tougher next year and so you can't you can't be the same this year as you were last year and i don't i'm not convinced that our running game is going to be any better this year than it was last year i think i think benson's good but i don't know if he's proven that he's going to be an upgrade over over corbin right off the right off the bat so um yeah i think if he's still 43rd you're still looking at a top 50-ish offense and in advanced metrics. And I don't think that's enough to, to really win seven games. 
So where do you, where where's your lineup for him then? He needs to be a top thirty passer next year. Top thirty? Yep. Yeah. I think I think if he's a top thirty passer, your seven games is, is something that um we're not worrying about at the end of the season. So we we when we looked at some of that offensive line data earlier, Robert Scott was at fifteen pressures with with fifteen blown assignments, uh whatever without it turning into a pressure. Um, I think if you eliminate just a few, a handful of pressures for Jordan on standard passing downs, yeah, I, I think it's going to easily get him there. Um, yeah. Cause I do think he's a player who's made the, made the growth that needs to be. It isn't interesting that we have no, no data for a third year quarterback into Mike Norvell system. <laughs> that's, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Maybe we went back to Arizona state, but I don't think he was there for that long. So yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think I think I tend to agree. I think he's going to slot somewhere in that twenty-five to thirty range, um, and I think that's enough to get the job done. Yep. Ooh, so we're we're bullish. We're optimistic the job. about we're the passing game. Championship. Okay. You hear yeah, it here, like, Coach AB, Florida State, twenty twenty-one, twenty twenty-two. I already set the bar at seven wins. <laughs> seven wins. If we can win seven wins this year, the, hey, the program whatever, is, is not going to fall apart overnight. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either, but. Uh, well, it might take two days. The passing, the passing game's not going to fall apart because that's what this is about. We're only talking passing game. All right. Well, so I think we've rambled long enough. It's been an hour uh, and some odd minutes. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for listening. If you've been watching this, thanks for watching. Um, make sure in the comments on the uh, article or on this YouTube video, ask us any questions. We're going to be there answering any questions. Obviously, there. are our differing opinions as we're forecasting the future. But um, I thank you guys for, for joining me on this Tuesday night. Thanks all the comments that we got. Um, and uh, we will see you guys soon. Bye. For drag queens to save the world. world. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is back on Paramount Plus, and for the first time ever, I want you to use your talent for good for a change. (laughs) Eight iconic queens are competing for the charity of their choice. This is how you do drag. Who will slay it forward, win cash for their favorite cause, and a coveted spot in the Drag Race Hall of Fame. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. New season now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply.